Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. In our last episode, we had an interesting conversation with Dr. Tiffany Dawson about LGBTQ youth and how being a member of a marginalized minority group negatively impacts their mental health. Today, we're gonna take a closer look at a subgroup of the larger LGBTQ population, specifically transgender children and youth. All of the vulnerabilities and risks facing the LGBTQ population that we discussed in the prior podcast certainly apply to transgender youth, hence the T in LGBTQ. In fact, research shows us that these children are perhaps the most at risk within that larger group. I wanted to discuss gender identity and the experiences of gender variant children as a distinct topic because it's something that many of us find hard to understand and get our heads around. In recent years, we've all begun to learn new terms under the umbrella of gender diversity. The notion of gender diversity itself, that there are many ways someone may identify outside of traditional binary male and female labels, is difficult for many of us to grasp. Societally, we've been trained to think of gender as strictly biologically defined and not open to change or interpretation. The World Health Organization actually defines gender differently as a social rather than biological construct. Why does this matter? If gender is a social construct, this means it's not definitively defined by a person's biology. Our traditional thinking of what defines gender is driven by our cultural norms. It's not finite, but rather open to variability across cultures and individuals. This also means that gender identity can change over time. If we understand that gender is not defined by anatomy or chromosomes, that it opens the door for diversity of gender identifications and expressions. This is a fundamental shift in thinking. Adding credibility to the position that gender can be defined by the person separately from biology and can be fluid, Dr. Paul Matrani of the Child Mind Institute reports that gender variance is seen in children as young as two and three years old, as soon as they're old enough to become aware of the societal notion of gender. These very young children assert, no, I'm a boy, or no, I'm a girl. For some, this identification feels foundational to who they are inside, if not on the outside. In today's podcast, we're going to speak with Dr. Robin Cooper. Robin is a licensed psychologist and clinician at the Los Angeles LGBT Center. Robin's area of clinical practice is working with transgender young adults, and she joins us today to share her expertise. Welcome, Robin. Thank you so much for joining us today. Although we hadn't met until I approached you about this podcast, I'm very familiar with the great work done at your organization. For the audience, please, will you share a little bit about yourself and a little bit about the center? Of course, of course. Hi, Tricia. I'm really happy to be here. Um, And I want to just first thank you for inviting me to talk with you today. Um, I appreciate any and all opportunities to talk with folks about gender identity, the transgender communities, and mental health. These are topics really near and dear to my heart. So thanks for this opportunity. 
So me, first, uh, my pronouns are she and her. I'm a white cisgender female who is straight identified. I'm a licensed psychologist, and I currently work at the Los Angeles LGBT Center. The center is a huge agency with over 700 employees that's provided services to the LGBTQ plus communities in LA for over 50 years. So we have many, many arms. We provide medical care, uh, mental health services, legal services, social services, including housing for folks. We have a really big cultural arts department that puts on these really amazing performances, and we have an area focused on research. So let's just say there's a lot going on there at the center. My current work is in health services, in the mental health department specifically, um, and in the transgender health program. So I work primarily in individual therapy and group therapy with folks who identify as members of transgender and gender variant communities and or folks who are just questioning their gender identity. I also provide mental health clearance letters for folks pursuing gender affirming surgeries and procedures, which we might get into later. I've only been at the center for a year though. Prior to coming here, I worked in university counseling for about a decade, where the focus of my clinical work was on and with transgender young adults. So I've had a lot of experience with the trans communities, um, and I know many mental health professionals say this and mean it, and so let me just join them. It truly is a privilege to do this work and to be able to sit with folks who are on a difficult and rewarding journey to know and live their truth. And anytime I get a chance to sit and talk with someone about my work, I'm thrilled. So thanks again. Mm, thank you for being here. Sure. Um, Something you just said brings me to actually my first question. You referred to yourself as cisgender. Um, and there are so many new words and terms that we've all had to learn of late uh, related to gender identity. And I do think it's important that we start with a shared basic understanding of terminology because a lot of these words are new for people. Could you take a few minutes to review what you would think of as the most important terms in their definitions for us? Absolutely, yeah, it's just really perfect to start here. Um, there really is some confusion about terms and before we start just throwing them around, um, we should just know what we're talking about. Um, so to begin to understand the transgender communities, we have to start with the distinction between sex and gender. Uh, someone's sex is often assigned at birth after a medical professional recognizes certain anatomy or chromosomes. And I mean, let's be real, medical professionals really identify sex when the fetus is in utero um, often. Uh, again, this is just a purely biological term and it's assigned to someone by a medical professional. Uh, most often a person's categorized as male or female, um, although of course there are folks categorized as intersex at birth. And these are folks born with anatomy and or chromosomal variations that don't fit into quote unquote typical notions of uh, male or female. But for the most part, sex is seen as male or female and medical professionals assign you that category. Gender identity is very different. Even though people sometimes use these terms interchangeably, it's a very different term. Gender identities are deeply held internal sense of ourselves as masculine, feminine, a blend of both, neither, or something else. So gender identity can correspond to or differ from the sex we're assigned at birth. Folks whose sex assigned at birth and gender identity align, if they align, um, they're considered cisgender. Uh, I'm cisgender, as I said. So when I was born, they assigned me female and I identify as a woman. Folks whose sex assigned at birth and gender identity do not align have a wide range of identities from which to choose. People get kind of tripped up here. Um, a lot of times people think gender as binary, as man or woman, and corresponding with their sex assigned at birth. That's called the gender binary, but in fact there are lots of gender identities uh, from which to choose. But the term transgender is often used as an umbrella term to describe anyone whose gender identity differs from their assigned sex. And it's good to remember that a person's gender identity can evolve and shift over time, especially as a person has access to a broader gender vocabulary. And even if and when it changes, that doesn't make it less valid at any particular time. Um, let's see, so one thing that can sometimes help people get this um, is the inaccurate naming of gender reveal parties. They are, in my opinion, problematic on so, so many levels. Um, but the idea that we have a sense of someone's interest or their life based on their anatomy seems kind of absurd to me. Um, but more importantly, they aren't gender reveal parties at all. They're sex reveal parties. 
They don't reveal gender. Gender identity is an identity we come to on our own. We tell people our gender. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. One yeah. is sort of body part, <laughs> yeah. and the other is um, what you feel inside as exactly. your identity. Exactly. And just the last one I'll, I'll say is sexual orientation. So sexual orientation and gender identity are separate but related parts of our identity. Your sexual orientation describes who you are physically or emotionally or romantically attracted to. So this is also a spectrum and it can change over time as someone engages in some self-exploration. So basically it's who you love. Gender identity is how you think about yourself in terms of masculinity and femininity and sexual orientation describes who you love. It's interpersonal. So someone could be um, transgender and mm-hmm. homosexual or heterosexual based on whatever gender they identify and then whatever other gender they're <laughs> attracted to. Yeah, this is where the part where they get related, right? So someone is born assigned male at birth. Uh, they realize that their gender identity, uh, they're assigned male at birth. They believe that they're attracted to women. Um, and so they identify as like a guy who is straight, attracted to women, and then they realize they're female, um, and they're like, "Oops, you know." So I'm a woman, and then sometimes it does is accompanied by an exploration of who they're attracted to, and sometimes they're still attracted to women, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, I'm a lesbian," um, but but not always, not always. Sometimes that exploration of gender identity and sexual orientation kind of go hand in hand, and other times they really don't. That that's that brings clarity to me. Thank you. Good. I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, I would suggest that many people, even well-intended people, um, sure. struggle with letting go of the idea that uh, you know gender is a biological construct that, you know, that it's, it's fixed. You have a Mm -hmm. certain anatomy, you have a certain chromosomal makeup, you must be a boy, you must be a girl. It's Mm -hmm. science, it's biology. Can you help us make sense of how someone could identify so strongly as a gender that's different than given your previous definition, the sex they were assigned at birth? Like, how does this happen? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question to start with, too, beyond just, you know, defining terms. And it's one many folks have. They ask, how does this happen? (laughs) What's going on here? Um, And and what I think is really important to say here is that exploring your gender and realizing that the sex you were assigned at birth isn't congruent with your gender identity is a perfectly natural process. Uh, It's a part of self exploration. It gets short-circuited by the world because we often don't give folks the opportunity to explore their gender, but it's a really natural process. Um, And truly, when the process doesn't get short-circuited by the world, when a kid is given an understanding of their gender as separate from the sex they were assigned at birth, when they're given language to describe their gender beyond male and female, then they can engage in an exploration of their gender. And that's right and good. Um, And of course, as we know, even when people aren't given that language uh, or understanding, they engage in a process of exploring their gender, and they might discover that their sex assigned at birth isn't congruent with their gender identity. So I'll give you just an example that might help a little bit. I have a six-year-old. He was born with a penis. When he was born, we started using he and him pronouns, and we did call him a boy. When he was two or three years old, we were reading him books about gender identity um, as a spectrum, and we were distinguishing between sex and gender, and we were talking about pronouns, um, and we let him know that we just guessed his gender, um, and he'll have to let us know. So we gave him choices of all types of clothes, of course, and all types of toys and everything. And he usually kind of mixed it up. Um, He'd wear kind of pants one day and skirts the next day. And when he was asked about skirts, usually by other people, um, he would say, well, I run a lot faster in skirts. It was like purely functional for him, (laughs) which I understand. Um, So, you know, hopefully we're giving him permission to explore his gender. And when we ask him, just check in on occasion, he says, you know, I think I'm cisgender. I still feel like a boy. You know, you guessed right is pretty much what he says. And so, you know, we'll see. Um, But usually gender identity is pretty pretty settled by this time, so likely he is cisgender. Um, 
and I guess, so I, I think the last thing I'll say again, kind of is that this is just a natural process and nothing makes it happen. It's really normative. Um, and I think our feeling that it isn't normative is is part of what causes so much pain and suffering in these communities. So I'm thinking about your last guest, and you talked about sexual orientation and LGBT folks and uh, children and mental health, which was a great podcast. Um, and I'm wondering, like, would you have asked your last guest, what makes someone attracted to someone of the same gender? Like, is that normative? You know, what makes this happen? So you probably wouldn't have asked her that. No, I wouldn't um, have. Yeah. And while I'm, you know, I'm totally happy to answer the question because it is something that people ask, there is a part of me that sometimes reacts to the question because buried in it is this idea that being trans is not normative, right? And that behaviors that follow that thought that it's not normative, that's where there's just a lot of harm done. And I, I really appreciate you you saying that. I think it's an important question to ask because it's in people's heads. Sure, absolutely. And so then that means it's important to talk about it and to hear um, from you about this. And, you know, I love your story about your son and the freedom that you mm -hmm. gave him to explore and discover that um, by by himself, let it be yeah. driven. Um, yeah. I'm using male terms because <laughs> yeah, he's still using he that's and him. He's identifying. You know, I, it never would have occurred to me, frankly, to do that with with my sons. Mm -hmm. um, they're 18 now, um, but I certainly did around sexual orientation. Right. Um, right. Absolutely. I right. never wanted to impose sexual orientation on them right. by any means. So. I always used gender neutral words and it's sort of the same process you're talking about here, except not just orientation, but gender mm -hmm. identification. Mm -hmm. right. I think that's lovely. Yeah, it's really just giving people possibilities, right? Like thinking, when you said that, it did make me think of this story. My son just started first grade fully in person um, because of COVID and uh, his sweet little um, teacher um, is like a cisgender white uh, woman, blonde, and she's like, you know, introduces herself. And then she's like, I just got married in May, you know, and Beck, my son raises his hand and he's like, did you marry a man or a woman or a non-binary person? <laughs> And she was like, uh. <laughs> um, so anyway, she said man. And then, you know, another person raised their hand and said, like, what's non-binary? And um, she said, I kind of fumbled on that. But your son just, you know, explained it to the class. I was like, <laughs> Good okay. for him. Uh, but she, she appreciated. She was like, I just assumed everyone knew I married a man, you know, um, but at least they have these other possibilities in their mind, which is nice. Right. Well, and good for her to be totally. open to having the conversation, right? Yeah. I was super grateful. She wrote me back. She's like, that was such a beautiful question. I was like, ah, great. <laughs> she could have shut him down. So absolutely. good for her. Yep. Absolutely. Good for her. Yeah. Um, you know, in my reading for today, um, I read some articles by Dr. Paul Matrani, and mm -hmm. he writes that exploring gender roles is actually a really normal part of childhood development. Mm -hmm. And I hear quite often mm -hmm. um, on comments or just from people that, um, you know, who argue that transgender children are just too young to know any better. Mm -hmm. How could they possibly know? You're just going through a phase. We should encourage it. Mm -hmm. These parents have issues. They must mm -hmm. be just imposing this on their kids because totally. for attention, whatever else, all these things you hear. Yeah. And, you know, I want to tell you just sort of an example yeah. of um, my story when I was young. This involves my younger sister as well, and she's going to laugh when she hears <laughs> me tell it. But when we were quite young, we, like early elementary school, we shared a room together, and we used to pray every night to wake up in the morning as a boy um, to the point where we slept in boys' pajamas with a fly so we'd be prepared <laughs> for our penises in the morning. Absolutely. You got to be prepped. And yeah. Yeah. We were prepared and we were so bitter that our mom made us wear dresses and lay socks to church mm -hmm. and we wanted to climb trees and mm -hmm. be outside mm -hmm. and, um, 
it was, you know, I think back on it and it, it makes me laugh. Like we were yeah. these quirky kids going through yeah. this, this exploration, but yeah. we really did pray for a penis and it's funny. I never felt like I was a boy. Right. I don't think looking back, I was exploring gender roles more than yeah. anything. And yeah. I think more than anything, we were reacting to sort of the restrictions of gender yes. roles in the 1970s in suburban Ohio, Sure, more than we were to our gender itself but that was a pretty persistent phase we went through I think my sister wore a baseball hat for a year sure so how do you explain kind of what's the difference between a transgender child and a child who's just exploring gender roles like my sister and I were Absolutely. No, that's a really fair question. I mean, the thing that comes to mind when you say that is just you're you're basically just like saying F you to patriarchy. I mean, it's basically what you were saying. I mean, I think it's you were just like exactly right. You were just like it wasn't that you wanted to. I mean, you did want to have a penis, but what the penis bought you, you know, was Correct. basically a type of freedom that you hadn't had uh, before because of gender roles, because of gender training and because of patriarchy patriarchy and sexism, there was a way in which you felt constricted and you wanted to be free of those constrictions. So that feels fair, you know, and right. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of young girls feel that way. Hopefully they're not feeling that way. Like, I wonder what would have happened if your mom didn't dress you in dresses um, and all that. And what if she would have just put you in whatever clothes you wanted to wear? Would you have associated uh, you know, pants with boys and been like, I want a penis. No, you would have been like, I'm just wearing pants today, you know? Right. So if right. they're given all these possibilities, then they don't associate them with, with a particular gender. Um, but it's a good question, you know, to distinguish between kind of gender play and then the experience of transgender kids. Um, I think that it's a fair question, but it also speaks to some fear people have, you know, like, how will I know that my kid is transgender and not just playing with gender? There's like a weird worry in there. Like, I don't, I don't want to mistake my kid playing with gender for them being trans. Like, yikes, you know, that's not good or whatever. Um, so I hear the fear buried in there and it's pretty common, you know, um, again, you know, exploring gender is a normal part of childhood development. A tranny is totally right. Um, I'd say that a transgender child actually doesn't initially present any differently than a child who's exploring their gender and experimenting with different gender expressions. A cisgender child may play with their gender expression um, and trying on different ways of being in the world, um, and they should. It's really normal. Um, and a transgender child, again, if given permission, will definitely do the same. So a distinction is that the transgender child begins to only feel like themselves when they're expressing themselves as a gender that's not congruent with their birth sex. They feel right when they are doing this, and they feel wrong in a presentation that's aligned with their sex assigned at birth. So at some point, they aren't playing dress up. They get depressed when people put them in clothes that are you know, congruent with a gender that's connected to their sex assigned at birth. And there's distress. There's real distress when they're not seen or read as the gender that they feel that they are, that they want to be seen as. So I think the level of distress and the, you know, the persistence, right, and the level of distress and the feeling of it being associated with, like, this is who I am. This is how I want to be seen. This is about gaining access to um, baseball caps and freedom and climbing trees and getting out of you know, shoes that aren't comfortable. Um, This is about being seen as who I am. Because, you know, if you think of transgender folks who are assigned male at birth and um, their gender identity is female, right, they're getting into those uncomfy (laughs) shoes, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but that's where they feel right and seen. And that is in their language, you know, that's in their language and you can hear it. And it's very different than sort of playing dress up or wishing you had some freedom associated uh, with another gender. And the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, you use the word encourage, you know, like maybe we shouldn't encourage them. And, you know, that's tricky. Uh, It's a really tricky word. It reminds me of the logic folks had about like sex education. Like, please, let's not talk about sex education. Then it'll be in their minds and it'll encourage them to have sex. And it's like, no, you know, they're already thinking about sex. You know, let's give them some information and some skills to make informed decisions about it. And most folks, I think, have figured that out about sex education. 
that we need it. Um, but, you know, even with sexual orientation, so same gender relationships, people were saying, let's not put that on TV. You know, two women kissing on on screen, it will encourage behavior, you know, that, you know, we, we don't really like, we don't really want it out there. Right. You can't um, let two men adopt because they're no. going to raise their child gay right. as right. if that's how it works. Exactly. And so right. I think, you know, the real thing is, you know, just believing people when they tell us who they are, that's not encouragement. It's called validation and affirmation and all of our hundred years of, you know, psychology research says that that is what we need, that there's no harm in that and only good can come from that kind of affirmation. What would you say to a parent that has two little girls that are praying for a penis and sleeping in boys' pajamas <laughs> in terms of sort of supporting their process and letting it play out organically? How would, like, what would you say to them? I would say what you just said, support your process, you know, and let it play out organically. I mean, I would talk about the the increased amount of, of gender play that happens when the gender training is so strict and rigid. So I would say there's way more gender play happening um, when you have a little boy who isn't aware, allowed to wear skirts, when you have a little girl who's not allowed to wear pants or baseball hats. So the more strict and rigid people are in their training and in their sense that that sex assigned at birth means this gender, means these interests and these likes and this presentation, um, then you know, you'll still get some play, um, but you won't be dreaming of a penis. I would also tell a parent to ask them, what does a penis give them? And give them that, <laughs> whatever it is, you know. Um, if it's climbing trees, let them climb trees and see if the there's a persistent, like you can be a girl and climb trees if you want, uh, but you could also be a boy. We're not sure. So we'll just let you do what you want to do and you think about... Um, who you are, you know? That makes sense. Thank you. Sure. Um, I know that you work with transgender young adults mm -hmm. and that they all have their own story and each one is unique. Mm -hmm. um, but can you kind of, maybe a case study was the easiest yeah. way to do it or just describe in general terms sort of the experiences of your clients as sure. they recognize and came to terms with their gender identity. Yeah, for sure. So it varies so much, you know, as I know that you know. I mean, you work with kids of various backgrounds, various family structures, various mental health presentations, you know, various histories. And so I was trying to think, is there a case? And there, there kind of isn't. But I will talk about all the factors at work that impact, you know, that journey. So, you know, there's the perception of whether your family's going to accept you or reject you. That's a major factor in people's coming to terms with who they are. There's just the knowledge that a person can be transgender. I have a client right now in their late 50s, never knew the term, never knew the term, just knew they sort of dressed up in secret and felt better and felt less depressed, you know, when they were in clothes that weren't sort of aligned with their birth sex. Um, there's a, you know, the sort of strictness of gender norms in a family culture. There's uh, the impact of the degree of kind of heterosexual normativity um, that's enforced in their lives. There's patriarchy, obviously. <laughs> There's the influence of race and class. Um, there's someone's access to another trans person and either on screen or online or in their life. Sometimes that's like a moment where someone's like, oh, that's it, you know? Um, there's someone's access to therapy. Not everyone has access to therapy in a space to do some safe exploring of their gender identity or just access to someone who believes them when they tell them, you know, that they're questioning or who they are. So there's just a lot of things that impact a person's journey with their gender. And I wish I could give you, you know, a sort of typical case, but I, I'd say there isn't one. Um, there's folks who really knew and had a name for it at three or four years old um, or, ha or knew at three or four years old, but didn't have a name for it. Um, there are folks who never questioned their gender until they were in their thirties or forties, but had a sense of kind of feeling off throughout their life. Um, and there are kids coming out at eight years old right now with a certainty, like a real certainty about this truth about themselves that I'd say kind of most of us envy in terms of that kind of clarity. Um, so there's just all these paths, you know, once a person recognizes this in themselves. And then there's just a lot of ways that people pursue 
congruence, you know, and people can take none, some, or all of those paths. They can pursue social congruence uh, with their expression, uh, hormonal congruence, uh, surgical congruence, legal congruence with their names, but there's just so many ways to be the gender you are, and because there's so many ways, there's just a lot of journeys, you know, to that way. So I guess I'd just say that we need to open our minds to all these possibilities. Well, and that that is interesting that you you do reference all those different mm-hmm. paths, and you know I I think there there's some general confusion about well transgender does that mean you automatically want the surgery right. or right. you know how that how that individual chooses to live their identity can vary greatly. Not everybody wants the surgery. Not everyone wants hormonal therapies. Um, But some do, and it does vary widely. Is that correct? It does vary really widely. There's some people who get surgeries that aren't on hormones. There are people that are on hormones and don't want surgeries. There are people who say they don't want surgeries, and then... They're like, no, actually, I do. There's some that take hormones and they have an effect from those hormones and they just kind of wait and see what the effect of those hormones are going to be before they pursue surgery. So, I mean, it, it really, really varies. Some people want to change their name. Some people like their name. They want to honor having their name, you know, and then they use these different words and people will use, you know, I'm a man or I'm a trans man because they want to honor, you know, a kind of earlier life where they were socialized female. So, the names that they use and the paths that they get there. I mean, I'd say that for most people, it's a journey that's feel filled with like a lot of relief, a lot of joy, and a lot of pain in varying degrees and kind of often felt all at once. Hmm. I'm sure. I'm sure quite a bit of loss too. Yes, yes. Dependent on how your loved ones react. Yeah, yeah. We spoke quite a lot in our prior episode about how discrimination, harassment, and abuse underlie the increased mental health struggles experienced in the LGBTQ population, not homosexuality itself. We also talked about the ugly history of how the mental health industry has treated and understood homosexuality, even classifying it as a mental illness as recently as the 1970s. These issues are in many ways intensified in the transgender world, which is even less generally understood than homosexuality. Study after study illuminates the great mental health vulnerabilities faced by the transgender community. The National Alliance on Mental Illness reports that while lesbian, gay, and bisexual youth are twice as likely as heterosexual youth to report persistent sadness or hopelessness, transgender youth are themselves four times as likely as their cisgender but homosexual peers to report these struggles. In other words, even within a group with noted vulnerabilities towards mental health issues, transgender youth stand out as the most at risk. The Williams Institute at UCLA recently published a report on suicide attempts among gender-variant adults. They found a clear correlation between minority stressors, or negative experiences related to anti-transgender bias, and suicide attempts. For example, as many as 78% of transgender participants who reported suffering physical and or sexual violence at school also reported attempting suicide. 59% of those who reported discrimination at work also attempted suicide. 57% of those whose family rejected them also attempted suicide. And 60% who reported that a doctor refused to treat them also attempted suicide. Sadly, while being open about sexual orientation improves mental health outcomes for LGB youth, the Williams report shows that suicidality increased for transgender youth who told everyone their gender identity. It is logical to assume this is the result of the discriminatory responses to their disclosure. Please 
please talk to us for a little bit, if you would, Robin, about uh, any correlations you've seen between discrimination and uh, bigotry or uh, harassment and the mental health struggles you see in your clients. Yeah, sure. So this is, I think, a real essential part of experience of the experience of folks who identify as transgender or gender variant. Um, they're being told in a million ways all day long that they're not welcome. There are systemic injustices written into laws about what bathroom you can use, what groups you can participate in, the struggle of getting a name change. There's gatekeeping by medical providers in terms of getting care, just basic care. Um, there's interpersonal injustices that look like outright hostilities with derogatory terms being called out of cars. And then there's interpersonal microaggressions daily, right, in terms of stares or misgendering. So this is a constant, like literally a constant source of stress. And I, I can't emphasize enough how harmful it is. Um, and just as you mentioned with the statistics, it literally kills people. And it's, it's quite devastating. Um, you know, I have cisgender privilege. So there's, when I think of privilege, I think of like stuff I don't have to think about. <laughs> so I don't have to think about going to the bathroom. I don't have to think about accessing medical care. And this is like a constant, constant struggle. Um, I sometimes wonder if, if cisgender folks could sit in on a group of transgender people talking amongst themselves, and I mean sit in and not talk at all, but just listen, um, about their lived experiences with really open hearts and minds. I wonder what sort of progress we could make in terms of lessening that hostility that these folks experience you know, every day. So, so yes, discrimination leads to mental health issues. If you're scared to go out, um, if you're scared uh, about what's gonna happen next, if you're scared to go to the doctor, um, you have anxiety. If you're feeling hopeless about your life and hopeless of getting a job or getting housing um, or you know that you're gonna lose your family by being who you are, you get depressed. So there's a strong, strong, strong correlation there for sure. Sort of the position uh, to be live your authentic self, yeah, but be ostracized and perhaps abused, or live a really inauthentic way, um, right. just to abide by norms. And I imagine those are really scary and painful decisions to have to make. And they both uh, come with mental health issues, right? And so thinking about denying who you are, right? We all know that, right, there's that quote, we're as sick as the secrets we keep, right? So the more we keep hidden from ourselves, the more we don't let out into the world, the more sick we are. And then for these folks, you let your truth out in the world, and then you get that sort of hostility back. Um, and then you're contending with that, and that impacts your mental health. Yeah, exactly. So what's your understanding about why transgender young people are even so much more at risk than their LGB peers? Because uh, we talked about in the last yeah. podcast about how our gay, lesbian, mm -hmm. bisexual neighbors and community members really struggle with mm -hmm. the discrimination they experience. Why, why are transgender young people so much more vulnerable yeah, so that's a good question, and I'm, I'm really glad you asked it. Um, so transgender folks face larger barriers, and they face those larger barriers more often as they try to live their lives. So I had a client who went to Comic-Con, that big whatever convention, um, a trans man, um, and he had to go to the bathroom but was really nervous about which bathroom to use, wasn't sure what was going to happen there in terms of how he was going to be read. So he didn't use the bathroom throughout the whole convention, and he got a UTI. Mm -hmm. Oh. So this is serious. This is, you know, this is just being able to use the bathroom. Um, and the fear of some sort of violence uh, committed against him caused him to get a UTI. And this is, can all be solved with an all-gender restroom somewhere in that huge convention um, to be able to use the bathroom. So you know, I'm talking about kind of access to basic rights like using a bathroom, being referred to with your name and your pronouns, which I think is just a basic right, um, and then facing medical care. I mean, that's a nightmare for most trans folks. Um, they can't even go to the doctor because there is little to no trust that the physician will know about trans people or trans bodies. I heard a story of someone going to the ER with a bleeding leg. They'd fallen down and uh, on a nail that um, oh. scratched their leg, yeah. 
and just like bleeding, bleeding with the nail stuck in the leg still because they were fearful of taking it out. And the ER wouldn't let them in because their ID said male and they read female. They were a trans female person, um, a trans woman, but they hadn't had their ID changed yet because it's expensive and <laughs> it's a lot of work. Um, and they were bleeding and they were not treated there. Wow. So that, that's what I'm talking about. So that feels... You know, I'm not dismissing the discrimination faced by LGB folks, but they can go to the doctor and get a nail taken out of their leg. They might not be allowed to have their partner come with them, right? Because they might not be recognized as, you know, their legal partner, um, but they can get basic medical care. Um, and then, you know, just sort of housing and employment discrimination, it's much more extreme for transgender folks. So that's really documented. So I'm talking about like live in a house, get a job, go to the doctor, you know, walk around the world, use the bathroom basic things, and that's a struggle. And then when you add, you know, additional marginalized identities, like race and class, um, you're adding layer upon layer of structural inequality and interpersonal hostility to navigate on a daily basis. So yeah, I'm, I'm not dismissing the discrimination faced by LGB folks. I have a lot of LGB folks, some LGB folks, non-trans folks on my caseload, um, getting to love who you want. Uh, family rejection still happens for sure. Um, getting to have a family if you want one um, and just being accepted by the world and the microaggressions they experience for sure. I'm just saying that the magnitude and frequency of the discrimination that trans people face is on an entirely different level. Um, and it makes the resilience, I think, of these folks more mind-blowing to me. So I, I say to people sometimes, like, it's an act of revolution to get up and face the world every day. And I'm not mm -hmm. exaggerating. I think it really is. I, I think that's beautiful that you, that you say that. And it also, I would hope that it would give us all pause mm -hmm. that these individuals feel so strongly about their identified gender, mm -hmm. they feel so strongly about who they are, that they're willing to face that level yeah. of discrimination to live yeah. authentically that way, that the fact that they mean it that much yeah. should give us pause, yeah. I think. Yeah. Why not believe them? Like right. It just is, right. Right. Yeah. Why would they put themselves through that? It doesn't make it any sense. So yeah. truly that is an identity that's so deeply held mm -hmm. or they wouldn't be willing to go through right. what they go through. Right. Um, so we have to talk about this next thing, which is <laughs> controversial. Sure. Uh, it was briefly mentioned in passing in our podcast last week, yeah. but the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders, the yeah. DSM, yeah. Our, our Bible for Diagnosing um, Mental Health Disorders, mm -hmm. gender dysphoria is still in there in the yeah. newest revised version. Um, explain for our listeners what that is and your understanding of the controversy around that label. Right. The DSM. So as you said, the, the old Bible for uh, mental health professionals. Um, so, you know, having homosexuality in the DSM until 1973, you know, already speaks to the right. pro problematic nature of that manual um, that has historically pathologized a very natural way to be in the world. Um, you know, and the book itself evolves over time, and it's certainly a representation, if, you know, pure social constructionists are to be believed, of what we find acceptable and useful in our society and what we don't, you know? As far as diagnoses for trans people, um, I mean, there used to be transsexualism, in, just worded just like that in the DSM, and then it became gender identity disorder, and now it's gender dysphoria. So I heard a talk by the chair of the DSM subcommittee that was focused on gender. So that subcommittee met to like review research and basically decide what goes in the DSM and what comes out and what gets modified, you know, in the new version. So he was talking and I mean, he spoke in a very nuanced way about the process. Um, gender dysphoria is a natural thing for gen transgender folks to experience. It's not a disorder, which is why they moved away from gender identity disorder and called it gender dysphoria. They thought about taking it out altogether, 
Um, and right now, you know, but right now transgender people still need these sort of mental health clearance letters in order to get insurance to pay for their pursuit of surgical congruence or gender affirming surgeries or procedures. So if someone wants to get top surgery or, or anything like that, they need to get a letter from a, a mental health professional. And in order for those letters to go through and be approved by health insurance companies, we have to give them a diagnosis. So if they would have taken it out, if it had to find something to give insurance companies. Um, so they kept the diagnosis in and renamed it gender dysphoria with the hope that that was less pathologizing and moving closer to the actual experience of trans people. Um, the medical providers at the LA LGBT centers, so the physicians and, and nurses that work with trans folks, they use endocrine disorder um, when they uh, diagnose folks uh, with trans who are trans and are pursuing surgeries. And we in mental health, we use gender dysphoria. So here we're saying it's just an experience of incongruence that a person has that a surgery might help with. So it's a diagnosis that if they get this surgery, it could help with. Um, and I can't speak for folks you know, in the transgender communities, but I can tell you that from my experience working with them, the feelings about the actual diagnosis vary a lot. So some people really, really hate it. You know, they say, there's nothing wrong with me. There's something wrong with this world that won't let me get what I need to be who I am. You know, there's, you know, a, a cisgender woman who wants bigger boobs. She doesn't need to go to the th therapist. She just, <laughs> no. she just goes and gets bigger boobs, you know, <laughs> because that's what she wants. So, you know, it's really frustrating that they have to be diagnosed with something and, you know, and then we have to approve them or whatever. And then there's other people that are kind of like, you know what, if it helps me get what I want, I don't care what they write on a piece of paper. If that's going to help me get my surgery, I'm cool, you know, whatever. So it varies, I guess, is my answer, the response. But that, that's the controversy, you know, that this is a natural thing and why have it in the DSM. I'll say personally, I like writing gender dysphoria more than gender identity disorder in my letters, sure. you know, since dysphoria describes a feeling and you know, a disorder um, has, you know, has a pretty pathologizing tone to it, but I wish I didn't have to write those letters at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it does to me beg the question, if they're experiencing perhaps major depression, mm -hmm. let's say, as a result of mm -hmm. what they're going through, why can't you right. just put the diagnosis totally. of major depression? Totally. Why do we have to say, oh, because of right. Right. this? Absolutely. It, it does still seem stigmatizing. It does. I think. It does. Yeah. I mean, and it's stigmatizing. I mean, yes, sure. If we still have to write a mental health letter, but why do we even have to write a mental health letter? Right. I right. mean, like, why can't they just say this is a medically necessary procedure? Uh, authorize it, you know, like, and so, fair yeah, enough. for sure. Yeah. But fair for enough. now we, we, we have to write them and, and we do. And at least it's evolving in the right direction, the terminology. It's evolving in the right direction. And even like the guidelines are, are shifting. You used to have to see a therapist for a long time in order to get hormones or do this or do that. And you don't need a therapist to get hormones anymore at all. And you only need to meet one time with a therapist to get surgery. So it's, it's better. It's moving in the right direction. Yeah, that's good. You know, as I was preparing for today, I, I found a whole slew of case studies mm. that demonstrated some really horrific experiences transgender youth have had um, in seeking mental health care. It was yeah. really painful to read some of them. Um, could you speak, please, how, as mental health providers, we can do a better job supporting these clients? We don't all have your level of expertise. Yeah. How can we do better? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, because of the history we were just talking about, mental health professionals just have a lot of repair work. We just have a whole lot of repair work to do with all, everybody in the LGBTQ communities and with people of color and, yeah people, have, we just have a lot of repair work. So we've pathologized, you know, their existence and we have to, you know, do better. So I like this question. Um, you know, I've mentioned a few things. Believing people is one of them for sure. Um, and there are changes on every level. There's sort of structural changes that need to happen. There's interpersonal changes when you're working with, with folks and just existing in the world outside of your, your, your office. And then there's just personal changes. Um, 
and maybe maybe starting with the personal. Um, first, I'd say sort of thanks to all the listeners for even listening to the podcast, um, to keep learning, um, to go to. I, I'm just going to say a website that I think is great if you want to learn about, you know, trans and gender variant kids, genderspectrum.org, um, to learn about these kids. Um, go to trainings, try to uncover your own biases about gender identity and about gender norms. Explore your own gender training that you got. Examine the roles of, like, patriarchy and sexism and how you think about gender. And notice when you think you know someone, something about someone, because you read them as a particular gender, just, just noticing that I think is really important. And notice your language. So language defines reality, right? So there's, there's small things you can do. Stay away from saying boys and girls and use children. So I, I consistently, like when my kid was born, just marked up all of his books, you know, with a Sharpie. But now he can read and he's like, what did you do to my books? Um, <laughs> um, you know, so I never thought I'd, you know, engage in censorship. But I've explained it to him um, why, uh, why we put firefighter in there, you know, and, and not fireman and things like that. Um, so yeah, use the word children instead of boys and girls, using the word folks instead of guys. You know, there's just a lot of language that we can change that is gendered and doesn't have to be. They talk about, even talk mm -hmm. about girls getting pregnant, right? And you would just not think anything of that. Um, but I know a trans man and he's pregnant, right? So it doesn't have to be, you know, gendered in that way. Um, personally too, just sort of Keep reading and putting books in your office about gender identity. Um, ask your own workplace for trainings, I think, is really important. Um, and then interpersonally, like I said, believing people when they tell you who they are. I mean, it's just a simple courtesy to believe someone when they know, are you sure? No, when did you know? No interrogation. No, none of that. Um, you can introduce yourself with your pronouns. You can ask your clients what their name is and what their pronouns are. Um, you can talk to them about gender. Just open it up. Be curious with them, not asking them to educate you. Um, I think asking questions that invite like a lot of different kinds of responses and not ones that kind of shut down possible answers. Um, and then I think structurally there's just a million things, but I mean intake forms, basically they matter. Either leave gender off or just let it be blank. I can't tell you the stress people feel when they see that gender and they see those two boxes. Uh, it's just mm -hmm. really stressful. Um, and I know Medi-Cal doesn't like that when we do that, mm -hmm. insurance companies, but we can figure out Medi-Cal later. We can later fill in their sex assigned at birth. We don't have to make them do it. Making sure you have all gender restrooms in your facilities and not special ones super far away. And if they're single stall restrooms, they can all be all gender if you if you want them to be. Right. So I just think we have to change ourselves and the way we interact with each other and our institutions instead of asking people to change, you know, to, to fit inside them. So I know that's a lot, but if folks can kind of commit to just one or two of those things, I think, you know, that's fantastic. Well, I, I, I think even your comment about intake forms mm -hmm. or, or Medi-Cal, it, it's really powerful. You know, we you know, seeing children at the guidance center, their Medi-Cal card, their mm -hmm. insurance card, it's going to have their, the name on their birth certificate, yep. the gender that was on their birth certificate. Yep. So in order to bill for services, though, that's the name and that's the gender you yeah. have to have yeah. in your chart and yeah. in your billing system. Yeah. And, you know, how painful a child coming here yeah. to talk about this process, what they're going through yeah. and and our charts don't reflect yeah. who they feel they are yes. inside. And, you know, we might interact, but there's still that mm -hmm. sort of logistical barrier there mm -hmm. that um, has to be painful. It really is. It's like getting more and more feedback from the world that you're not who you are and that you're not okay. And I do think that, that there's lots of ways around it. I think we can give people the heads up. Uh, you know what? I have to write this mental health clearance letter. I'm going to refer to you as your name throughout it, but I have to put your birth name up top or insurance won't pay for it. You know, you haven't legally changed your name. So I need, have to use the name that's on your insurance card. Um, but throughout this, I'll refer your name, your preferred name, your actual, your name, but your right. birth name will be way up top with your birth date. Just so you know, if you ever see it. 
um, but I see you and I know who you are, and this is how I'll refer to you. So I think giving people a heads up, when I have people sign consent forms, I'll have to say, like, look, your birth name is on here. I, when we were in person, I used to cover it with a Post-it, <laughs> just like so you don't even have to look at it. Just sign what you want, you know? So, yeah, it's, that's a simple thing, but it can mean a lot to people. That conversation, the way you just outlined it, that feels very respectful. So mm. thank you for that. Sure. You know, we, I spoke in the last episode about how important positive representation in the world mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. is to LGBTQ youth. Yeah. But it still seems that a vast majority of transgender representation on TV, wherever else, mm-hmm. is still pretty derisive in mm-hmm. nature. There's kind of a mocking mm-hmm. element mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Um, can you please talk about that, about the role of representation in the media? Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, it's it's good to talk about. I mean, we all know the importance of people seeing themselves on the screen, right? Um, and I was about to say TV, but I just, I don't think people are watching TV. They're, yeah, they're on know. their phones I'm, and their I'm computers. I'm old. I still no. said TV. <laughs> Me but yes. too. Yeah, they're just phones, <laughs> computers, that's it. Um, but we need trans people everywhere. We need them in movies, TV shows, commercials, books, you know, and they need to be nuanced, per, you know, portrayals about a person's whole life, you know, not just their transness. Um, some of the early movies that came out were derisive. They portrayed transness in one particular way, um, and it did hurt more than it helped. So we need trans people writing TV shows and movies and books. Mm-hmm. We need them behind and in front of the camera so their stories are told, and they're told by them. You know. And to be honest, I, I did think a, a lot about being here today and whether I have the right to speak right, on behalf of this community of which I'm not a part, you know, so maybe next time there's a way we give the microphone to bunches of trans people, right, so they can tell their stories. That would um, be amazing. Yeah, narratives to the world, you know, <laughs> um, in podcasts and TV and books and everywhere. So representations, you know, it, it's really important, really important. Um, you know, despite all the challenges we spoke about today, yeah. people are trying to learn new languages, new words. Yeah. Uh, progress is being made. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's always pushback, too. Yeah. And it still seems like it's very slow. Yeah. So what what gives you hope? Yeah, this is my favorite part of your podcast. Um, Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've been talking about the suffering of trans folks and, you know, the sort of systemic and interpersonal you know, aggression towards them um, in so many domains of their life. So, you know, what do we see as hopeful? So I do have a lot to say about this, and I think it's good to balance it out about with hope. Um, You know, we have to have it. Um, First, I'm glad we're talking, you know, and I see more people talking, more people asking questions and trying to understand, and I'm really hopeful about that. I really am. I also find it hopeful that I have a job devoted to working with trans folks, um, that we have a trans health program, and that more agencies and hospitals and even now health insurance companies, they have departments, right, where they're being really trying to be as intentional as they can about working with trans and gender questioning folks. So that's that's really great. Um, I mean, related to this, I think one thing I hope for ultimately is that a trans psychologist replaces me at my job. You know, I think mm-hmm. about that idea just sort of gives me hope of someone being able to sit with someone who's had a a similar lived experience. Um, I think another thing I'm hopeful about is just the support that trans folks give one another in their lives. Their ability to find each other and build community and help each other is really hopeful and amazing. Um, And they live these beautiful lives that I think in no small part because of the support within their own communities that they build among one another. So I think that's really helpful. And then of course kids, you know, children in particular, just being willing to be themselves, you know, against all odds is a pretty magnificent sign of the resilience of the human spirit. And that's really helpful. I'm really blown away by them a lot. Um, But on that note, I think I want to say something that might not initially sound helpful, but I think it is, you know, and it's worth mentioning. We talk a lot about this generation of kids being really brave, you know, being really amazing and really brave and how that gives us hope, you know, and they are brave. Like, there's no question. They're pushing us and they're pushing us, thankfully, you know, and we have to listen. 
But I also think we have to do our part as adults so that maybe they don't have to push us so much. You know, we have to see them as kids. It shouldn't be on the seven-year-old or the 16-year-old to educate us or tell us how to talk about sex and gender and race and class. It's not on them. You know, it's on adults to create a world with the kids, with their voices, um, to make sure everyone feels like they can be who they are. We have to create a world where a kid telling a parent who they are doesn't create a grieving process for the parent. You know, while I get that and it's valid and I'm not kind of turning on parents here, I've worked with a lot of parents in family therapy around this, but it's not the kid's work, it's the parent's work. And so kids shouldn't have to convince their parents about who they are and then wait and watch their parents grieve. It's kind of awful, you know, if you <laughs> think about it. So I think it's, it's on us to sort of blow our own minds about gender and use language and engage in practices and build structures, structures that invite all experiences of gender um, so that kids don't have to be so brave all the time, right? So that we can sort of take, take this on. So I think that's slowly happening, really slowly, and it's happening in dialogues like this one, um, where we're remembering how important it is to listen and trust ourselves and our kids and have less fear, you know, and kind of help build this, this world, you know? Thank you so much. I, I, I really appreciate just the hopefulness, but also I, I think that's a really important point that you make that it's not on the child, it's not the child's job right. to help us grieve or understand. Right. Um, it's not, they, it is our job yeah. to figure it out yep. and find a way to be there for them. Yeah. I, I think that's a really important point. You know, Robin, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your unique insights as a clinician working with transgender young adults. I feel like I've learned so much <laughs> today. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And again, I think it's a really important one. This is something we need to be comfortable talking about if we really want to be trauma informed yes. in how we live our lives. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do something that hurts somebody. Mm -hmm. So I need to understand this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for Th having me. It was great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Sure. I hope that we all gained some insight through today's conversation. It is my position that by shining a light on these issues, admitting that they are in our own backyards, it'll be easier for someone struggling to get some help. Through conversation, we can become agents of change. Certainly, we can be a safe place. In My Backyard is brought to you by The Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Trisha Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.